Welcome to Headed Someplace, a show where strong, inspiring, enduring women share their stories with us. I'm Kara, and today marks the first week back after a few month break in episodes. If you aren't currently getting my email updates, then you may not be aware, but I basically just commit to releasing eight episodes at a time. So I did two seasons of eight episodes, and I release one show every other week. And then I just take a little break to reevaluate the show, take some time for family, and work on other projects. So this is the first of the unofficial season three of the Headed Someplace podcast. Today, my guest is Leslie Poe. One of the main things we talk about today is her husband getting a cancer diagnosis when they had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a nine-month-old baby. You guys, it's so nuts. I think you'll find it interesting as well as encouraging to hear how people stepped in to take care of them. We also talk about marriage, motherhood. You guys stick around because Leslie drops some incredible wisdom throughout the whole show, but I feel especially toward the end. So without further ado, Leslie, tell Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in life. Sure. I'm Leslie Poe. My main job these days is as a full-time stay-at-home mom to three little boys who are eight and six and four. And about four years ago, um, I began homeschooling them, which was not something that had ever been on my radar. So most of my days are spent um, educating my crew. And then I also part of the year have a part-time position as an adjunct instructor in the psychology department at Oklahoma Baptist University. So that will kick up again in January. That's awesome. So I just really teach in the spring semester. Maybe someday if I'm not homeschooling, I might add more to that and do more in the fall. But for right now, it's kind of my sweet spot to be able to have part of the year where I go put on my grown-up clothes and have grown-up conversations. Yes. And <laughs> Use my degree and um, just do something a little bit different than my every day the rest of the time. That's awesome. That's so cool. Okay. And I also happen to know, because we do go to the same church in Oklahoma City, that you were just installed as a deacon at our church. Yes. Yes. um, I'm so excited about that. You know, I grew up in churches that didn't really have much of a um, formal leadership role for women. Now, granted, I got to see a lot of women serving their hearts out and doing amazing things for the Lord, but to have a church that um, values having women in a more formal role serving the the church body in practical ways is really, really fun to be a part of. This is kind of a new thing for Frontline Church, so getting to be in that first group of people figuring out what that looks like is pretty cool. That's so awesome. So what is, what is for those listening who don't know what a deacon is, or, I mean, I honestly don't even know what, like what the description is or your, your role as a deacon. What is that? Okay. Well, it can look different in different places um, and at different churches and different denominations, but for Frontline Church, we kind of distinguish between elders and deacons leading out in the church with elders being in more of a governing and teaching role and deacons being in more of a practical care and service role. Mm-hmm. So we're still kind of fleshing out what that looks like and, and what all we'll be doing um, specifically within that. But I know I, I love stepping in to um, seasons of suffering and difficulty with people. So hospital visits, meeting um, families that have new babies. That's not a season of suffering, obviously, but it's a big, big life transition. It can be, moment. yeah. It can be, it can be absolutely. Um, so things like that, um, coordinating a lot of what we do with the homeless and the marginalized in our city is a big item on the deacon's priority list. And we've got a few folks on our deacon team who do that for a living. And so getting to partner with them and figure out how to cast that vision to the rest of our church um, is going to be a big piece as well. So that is so cool. So we're going to get into a lot more questions that I have. But first, I always like to start off the show asking our guests to tell us a random fact about them that not a lot of people know. So what is your random fact? Well, I mine is not super quirky, but I was an Air Force brat. And so that had a huge impact on my development and my personality. And um, I've spent most of my childhood moving around a lot and got to live in some really cool places like Hawaii and Panama, which um, I'm super excited because my husband and I are going to Panama in February. Uh. I've never been back. 
and I have a, a lot of early childhood memories there. So I'm super excited to go visit that place again and see if anything is familiar. Hawaii, but, first of all. I've never been. Yeah. How long were you there? We were only there for two years, okay. but we have been joking because um, earlier this year we were on a road trip and ended up going to Rapid City, South Dakota, which I had also lived there as a kid. And now we're going to Panama. So I was like, Jonathan, this is like my Time. old home tour. And so we should probably hit Hawaii this year too. That's right. Hawaii is next on the list. <laughs> uh, so Panama, this might be a dumb question, but I'm horrible at geography. But I think, is it South America, just like at the northern tip of South America? Kind of, it's Central America. So it's oh. that skinny little country right smack in the middle of Central America that just okay. connects the two. And then the Panama Canal splits right through the middle of it. So that's so cool. So is it hard for you to stay in one spot now? Okay, it's actually it's the opposite because I I moved so much that the idea of like getting to grow up in a place which ultimately when my dad retired, I did kind of get to have that hometown experience of uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, so right down the road from Oklahoma City, but I um, now am like super attracted to the idea of kind of that stability and my children having some consistency in a place. So I've had to also kind of hold that idea loosely um, because I kind of can cling to that a little bit since I didn't have that growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. My husband spent his whole life living within like five square miles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's, it's funny. I've like attracted to the childhood that he had in so many ways because it's so different than mine, but there's merits to both. Yeah. Okay. So tell us how you met your husband. Okay. So I was a freshman at OBU and Oklahoma Baptist University. University. Yes. And I was a freshman and I had been invited to go on this J term trip. So OBU does, um, a, a January session of classes, kind of like a summer school session. And you can either take a class or you can just have a really long Christmas break. And so a crew of us from OBU had gotten, had a connection to get jobs at Breckenridge, the ski resort in Colorado as ticket scanners and lift operators. And so, so I, fun. <laughs> I do not know what my parents were thinking, letting me go live with a bunch of other college kids for a month in Colorado as an 18 year old, but they did. And there was this really cute senior guy who was the older brother of one of my good friends who was also going on this trip. And so on the day that we were leaving for this trip, we all met at the Pose house in Oklahoma city to meet up and caravan to Colorado. And so we met in my husband's house that he'd lived in his whole life that is um, so on the day that we were, um, set to leave for this trip. So we spent that month working together and skiing together. I became a really good skier because I so badly wanted to impress him that I just <laughs> followed him on any run he wanted to do, even oh if they were God. like double black diamonds and I was about to, you know, die, <laughs> die. Yeah. But I was going to play it cool and get this hot senior guy to like me. So that's so awesome. Yeah. And he did. So and it um, worked. It did. It did. So we dated all through um, the rest of my four years um, of college and got married right after I graduated. Okay. Did your parents have a rule you had to graduate to get married? They didn't. Okay. They didn't. But um, which actually was kind of like at a small liberal arts Christian college, it was a little bit abnormal to not um, get married while I was still in school. True. But I just, you know, that's kind of the trend at places like that. And I just really, I was never one of those girls who went to college thinking I'd meet my husband. It was kind of a surprise to me that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually broke up for a spell because I was like, oh, shoot, I've met the love of my life, but I still want to like do my own thing and have fun. <laughs> and um, let's put this on hold. <laughs> yeah. Um, bless his heart. He earns a extra jewel in his crown for putting up with (laughs) my um, early 20s shenanigans. But he held strong. And um, yeah, I just kind of knew that for me, like if we were to get married, we had the rest of our lives to be married. And so me enjoying college to the fullest and being involved and living on campus and all of those things were important experiences for me to finish out. Way to go. I feel like you had to be pretty like confident in who you are at that age to do that. I don't know. Well, and it also helped that he was like super supportive and, yeah. and wanted me to have those experiences too. So, right. um, so it kind of went both ways. That's really cool. I went to a um, small Christian university as well. And we always, 
like heard even before I went to school there when I was still in high school, it was like ring by spring was the phrase. <laughs> yes. Yes. That and getting your MRS degree. That's right. Um, I heard of that a lot. Yeah. So, and I will never forget because that was just not on my radar. The first week of orientation, my freshman year, hearing girls make those jokes or talking about like the cute new youth ministry major that they met that day <laughs> that they're pretty sure they're going to marry. And I was like, what are you people talking about? Like, this is we're 18 years old. I really yeah. did come to get a degree. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You're one of the only ones. Okay. So early on in marriage. So I, I guess how old were you when you got married then? I was just shy of my 22nd birthday and Jonathan was 25. Okay. And you ended up going to Baylor for, was it a graduate degree? Yes, I did. Okay. I wanted to pursue higher education administration and student affairs specifically. So all the out of the classroom experiences that you had in college, whether it's residential life, student activities, leadership programs, all of those things um, I had loved as a student and yeah. really um, loved the idea of facilitating those experiences for students in the future. So yeah, that's so cool. Those are all the things I love too that my husband makes fun of me for. Right? Yes. <laughs> we joke that like we could not have been more different in our college experiences. Yeah. I was just all in, living it up, and my husband kind of flew under the radar. And same. You know. That's our story too. Yes. That's so funny. So yeah, I applied to Baylor at the end of that first year of our marriage and we quit our jobs in Oklahoma City and went and backpacked through Europe for two months and then moved to Waco. Y'all are and, so cool. You know, we just figured when else in life are we going to like be in one of these transition periods where we don't really have anyone to answer to and yes. we need to quit our jobs anyway. So why not quit them early and go have some adventures? Way so. to go. I feel like y'all have done things very wisely early on. That's pretty impressive. I mean, truly it is by the grace of God because I look back on that season. I'm like, I was so not wise in so many other areas <laughs> that the fact that I chose a really amazing spouse and just did a few things that I look back on and I'm so thankful for, but I'm like, I really, I know that I was not smart enough to yeah, have done thanks. that on my own <laughs> at that time. Okay. So, okay. So then you went to Baylor. Yeah. So my program at Baylor was two years long and I um, was wrapping up that program when we just went through the first really challenging time in our marriage. We had had the terminal illness of a close family member and that ended up leading to them passing away. And I was in the middle of wrapping up my program and all the stress that comes with that when my husband unexpectedly and quite dramatically lost his job. And it was just a big, stunning blow to us. We later found out that there were some shady things that happened in mm -hmm. the, the ranks above him that led to that happening, but we were just blindsided. And it was one of those things where it was like, your insurance is terminated at midnight tonight oh, and gosh. you know, no severance pay, no nothing. It was just really a shock to us to having had a just pretty innocent, sweet little life to that point together right. to have these major family things happening, this kind of wrongful thing happened to us in the professional realm, all while the stress of me trying to finish my program and figure out what I was going to do next. So very long story short, um, my husband just really took that time to spend a lot of time praying and reading and spending time alone and hiking in the woods. And mm -hmm. God led him to a career change. He knew that he could just go get another job in business, but he also knew, and I knew that he'd been pretty miserable for the last several years, really since we'd been married um, professionally, he was really unhappy. And I had always thought since we were newlyweds, like, this is not what God created you to do. I didn't know what God had created him to do, but I knew that sitting behind a desk with spreadsheets was not it. Yeah. And um, he decided on optometry. So that meant that instead of moving across the country for me to take some amazing student affairs job that I had thought I would take, mm -hmm. we ended up moving back to our alma mater of OBU. I took a job as a residence hall director there, and he was able to do all of his prerequisites for free, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. But Suddenly, we went from this kind of one track to living in a cinder block apartment in a women's dorm <laughs> and him taking undergraduate classes with a bunch of 18-year-olds at 27 years old. Right. And, uh, it was just a real reversal of what I thought I had signed up for. Yeah. Um, 
And, and that was challenging, but I will say on the other side of things that I would do that 10 times again to Mm. see him living out his calling. And, and that also ended up playing into what I was able to do later in, in future jobs and and things like that. So it all, it all worked out, but it was definitely one of our first big, um, trials to get through together. And at one point we were living in the upstairs bedroom of some of our dear friends in Dallas because he could start taking summer classes in, in the Dallas area and still get in-state tuition. And my job at OBU didn't start until August. And so some precious friends of ours were like, well, we've got this bedroom. Um, You can come live with us. So I went from like, you know, just kicking booty and taking names in grad school. And that I was going to be like the youngest college president. And next thing I know, we're living in our friend's upstairs bedroom. And I'm about to go be a residence hall director, which is the one thing through grad school I said I would never do. I would never work <laughs> residential life. And then yeah. my first job, you know, right. it was just a good wake up call for a girl who had kind of thought that I had it all together and knew, you know what to expect. Do you, yeah. Do you still like, are there any of those dreams that you still have? You know, there are. Um, and yet the further away from those things I get, the more realistic of you I have of what those things cost in other areas of my life Hmm. and the less willing I am to, to make some of those sacrifices right now. So, um, I mean, I was working until nine and 10 o'clock most nights of the week and then had events all weekend because college students are not eight to five people, you know, not at all. And so I, Jonathan decided to go to optometry school at the university of Memphis. I got a job at the university of Memphis and was working there when I got pregnant with our first and through a crazy scenario, I ended up not having maternity leave there. And that's the only reason I ended up staying at home. <laughs> as Really? Yeah. Wow. That and the fact that I knew I'd be spending 80% of my salary on childcare. Yeah. And so it just didn't make sense to it, keep working yeah. those crazy hours for so little return. Right. And so that's kind of accidentally became a stay at home mom. <laughs> Okay, in just a minute, we're going to hear all about Leslie walking with her husband through cancer. But first, I wanted to tell y'all really quickly, come over and find me on Instagram. I am at Cara Z. That's K-A-R-A-D-A-W-N-Z. I'm going to be doing some giveaways, I'm pretty sure, this season. So you're really going to want to be following. So even right now, pull up your Instagram app. Find me at Caradon Z and maybe even comment on the photo of Leslie to let us know that you're listening to the show. Okay, so on to possibly the most life-changing time in Leslie's family. May of 2015, that's just a few years ago, Leslie's husband, Jonathan, had been experiencing several months of some health issues, one of which being pretty chronic lower back pain and no pain relievers were relieving the pain. Thankfully, their family care physician wanted to get to the bottom of what was causing all this and he sent Jonathan in for some testing. So one day I was at home with our two youngest who were at the time three and nine months old. And my oldest was five and in pre-K and Jonathan walked in the door at like nine 30 in the morning. And I said, what are you doing home? You know, I thought he had a break in his schedule and he immediately started crying. And I um, knew that something was really horribly wrong. And he told me that he'd gotten a call from his doctor. And thankfully his doctor, um, who is a family friend, knew him well enough to go ahead and just give him that news on the phone and had told him that he was 99% sure that Jonathan had testicular cancer. Hmm. And, um, a week after that initial phone call from his doctor, Jonathan was in surgery. So it was just a, um, unexpected Thing to have your very healthy 36-year-old husband diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. And that kicked off a year of treatment for him. So he, after that initial surgery, about a month later, began four months of a really intense chemotherapy regimen. You know, mm-hmm. chemo looks different for everybody, but sure. for us, it was all day, every day for a week mm. um, at the cancer center. And then a Monday and a Monday, and then we would do that all over again. So we did that for four months, and then um, okay, in, hold on, I want to stop you because yeah. you have you have a nine month old baby, 
Yes. You have, and tell me, and you have a five-year-old and a two or three-year-old? Yeah. So they were five, three, and nine months old when he was diagnosed. Okay. So I want to know what in the world you were thinking, like when he, I'm sure a lot of things, I mean, did they give you like, oh, his first, his odds are good. I mean, what were you thinking? You have three kids and you're like, I can't, we can't not have a dad. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So here's what we joke about. Um, Jonathan will say this too, that I am the first person you want around when it all hits the fan and life gets crazy. <laughs> That's good to know. I'm keeping your number. But, but I'm the last person you want around when it's all over. Okay. So <laughs> I apparently, I have since learned about like post adrenaline depression and things like that. And okay. so now I know, and I've since looked back on other things in my life, like I am really good in the stressful Crisis moment. Crisis mode. Yes. Okay. Um, and so when Jonathan first that that first day told me in the living room that he had gotten this call from his doctor and that we had an appointment in an hour, I just was like, okay. Like I did not cry. I was, I was just ready. And I do believe that that was the grace of God in that moment mm-hmm. because Jonathan was in that moment grieving and, you know, you can't all fall apart all at the same time. Right. Somebody's so, got to take care of the kids. <laughs> yeah. So it was just kind of this very, it wasn't like a shoving down emotion. It wasn't ignoring it or not being in reality. It was just truly the peace that passes understanding in that moment. And a, a big part of my story in um, walking with my husband and family through cancer is that um, I really stayed there throughout that experience through that whole nine months of treatment, I can really count on like one hand the times that I cried, Hmm. which is really crazy. Um, But I also had enough of a background in mental health that I knew that I was numb. And I knew that I was not feeling the full weight of the emotions that I should be feeling in that moment. Right. And I knew that at some point they would come. And in the meantime, I was just going to take that as just a gift from the Lord that he was allowing me to operate in survival mode and do what I needed to do. But mm-hmm. I did have those moments um, and they came at weird times. I will never forget um, within a week or so of his first surgery, I remember going to Panera and at some point I got up to go to the bathroom. I think I was with friends. And I went into the bathroom by myself. And the second I closed the stall door, it was like the walls were closing in on me and the weight of Mm. he could be in that percentage that doesn't make it just caved in on me. And um, the weight of that emotion hit hard. And so there's that like one distinct moment. But then other than that, I really kind of stayed in just that like superwoman, get it done. Somebody has to function mode. Now that did not last forever. And we can talk about that more later. Um, but so Jonathan testicular cancer in the grand scheme of things is a if you could see my air quotes, a good cancer (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) in that the success treatment is really, um, really positive. And our doctor told him, from the get-go that he was fairly certain Jonathan would make it through this, but he specifically said, but you're going to have to go through hell to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the treatment regimen for testicular cancer is notoriously a really rough one. All the um, infusion nurses at Stevenson Cancer Center told us pretty honestly, like we don't see anybody just coast through this particular type of chemotherapy. Um, because you have people trying to be nice before you go through something like that who are like, Oh, well, my cousin just had chemo and they didn't even lose their hair. And it really wasn't that bad. So maybe it'll be like him. (laughs) Well, they just pretty much told us up front, like, yeah, that will not be the case for you. This will be pretty brutal, you know? And it was, and Mm -hmm. he ended up being one of those lucky people that got pretty much all of the side effects that they read off to you before you to treatment. And so, you know, when some of the nurses are a little bit baffled at how to manage some of your side effects and symptoms and are calling in the pharmacist and that kind of thing, you're like, oh man, I really, this is a bad I'm one. Getting, yeah. I'm getting the, the raw end of this deal here. Yeah. Wow. Um, so nausea, weakness. I mean, yes, all okay. of those things. I think the hardest thing for us as a family is that 
um, in addition to all the things you expect with chemo, Jonathan's, it was like his senses were all on overdrive, which makes sense when you think about the nausea and the scent sensitivity and things like that. But for Jonathan, that affected even sound and touch. And so when you think about life with a five, three, and nine-month-old, mm, you know gosh. that even when children are on their very best behavior, mm. um, they are loud. And yeah. so we, I think one of the biggest kind of casualties for our family going through that is that I really kind of became a single mom and Jonathan just really could not be around the children um, without everything he was feeling being just exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And so he would pretty much come home from chemo and I would put him to bed back in our bedroom and shut the door. And eventually I'd bring the kids in to say good night and that kind of thing. But, and he did have good days in there where he would go to work and could engage with the boys, but, Mm -hmm. um, those sporadic and in those worst days of chemo, they didn't happen at all. So that was, yeah, really painful for everybody involved. Yeah. So when at the end of treatment, when do you hear like, I mean, do you hear you're cancer free? Do you hear you're in remission? What's the. Yes. So Jonathan wrapped up his chemotherapy in October and there was still enough disease left at those scans that his doctor really wanted to be certain that they had gotten everything. And so Jonathan in, in early December, after he'd had some time to kind of rebuild his body's strength from chemo, he underwent a surgery called an RPLND, where they essentially cut you open straight down from your sternum oh my gosh all the way down and they go in and take out all of the diseased lymph nodes so Jonathan was stage three because the disease had traveled up all the way into the lymph nodes of his torso okay so he ended up going through a six-hour surgery to remove all the remaining lymph nodes that could potentially have disease that could then spread to other parts of his body. And so he did that surgery, which, like I said, was intense. It was a six-hour-long um, operation and then was inpatient for a week in the hospital. And about two days after surgery, it was December eleventh, two 2015, his doctor came in and let us know that the pathology report had come back from all of that lymph node tissue that had been removed and that there was no evidence of disease. And I'll never forget that he left and said, well, I'm going to go see some sick people now. Oh, that makes me want to cry. Yes, it was just um, the best day wow. ever, really. And even then, I think it was like hours later before I looked at Jonathan and realized we're done. It's over, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't quite over, but the worst <laughs> of it was. And yeah. so, yeah. Wow. Did you guys ever like? I don't know what you do in that situation. Like, do you have like a party? <laughs> like, what do you what do you do? <laughs> well, so unfortunately, because his abdomen, his surgery was so um, intense in your abdominal area, he, this is so sad, he was not allowed to eat more than five grams of fat a day for an entire month. And his surgery was December 9th. So he had to go through all of Christmas. Rough. You don't think much about like five grams of fat a day is like nothing when you really start looking at fat grams. So yeah. we couldn't really um, celebrate. And at that point, he was still still had a long way to go in his recovery. Um, yeah, but we do celebrate December 11th now, um, as cancer free day in our house, we've kind of made it a family holiday. And so Mm -hmm. the first year anniversary, Jonathan and I took a trip to Chicago, just the two of us. And last year we took cinnamon rolls to the staff of his oncologist office on that day and visited the cancer center. Mm -hmm. And this year we all went out to dinner as a family. And so our boys, know that this is going to be kind of a marker for our family of God's goodness to us Mm -hmm. and Jonathan making it through that. And so we are going to celebrate. Yeah. But there wasn't much celebrating that day. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Yeah, I'm sure. He probably couldn't even laugh or anything for a while. Yeah, it was, you don't think about how much you do with your abs until you have the pet open. And uh, I don't think I've ever been so nervous driving as I was driving him home from that surgery because you don't think about how much you use your abs to stay stable in a car. Until someone is cringing next to you every time you make a move. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We would be – our marriage might be over if that was the case for us. Um, okay, so two questions from that. So one would be, how did that all affect your marriage? And the other, when did you start to feel it all and get out of the survivor mode? Yeah. So I and we both were really shocked by how – 
much suffering, a season of suffering, tempted us to pull away from each other instead of pressing toward each other. It's really incredible how when you're hurting and when you're scared, so often that expresses itself as anger and frustration. And it's really easy for that to get directed at the person who's in it with you. And so we both really dealt with a lot of intense emotion that wasn't always positive toward each other. Um, I, Jonathan and I are really different. You have so many marriages function because personalities are really different. And so when you're in the crucible of a difficult time, I think it amplifies what's already there in both of our personalities. And if you've been married any amount of time, you know that like, those very things that you love about somebody can become the things that are annoying the heck out of you. And so for example, we would go to chemotherapy and Jonathan, who Jonathan deals with some anxiety um, chemotherapy was really emotionally and spiritually and mentally um, difficult for him. I mean, it was a battleground every day for him to walk in there and submit to a treatment that you know is going to make you feel awful. Mm-hmm. And um, so his mode of coping was that he barely said a word to anyone. He walked in and he sat in the chair. And of course he was nice to the nurses, but he put on his sound blocking headphones. <laughs> he closed his eyes and he listened to worship music or occasionally he'd watch some golf or something really benign on TV, mm-hmm. but he was just in the zone. I, on the other hand, am an extrovert. And so I would walk in and be chatting up the nurses to make sure that they really liked us and yeah, gave yeah. us good And, oh, there's a sweet little old lady next to me who doesn't have anyone visiting her. And my husband's in the zone, so I might yeah. as well chat with her. And, you know, I was just kind of coping by doing what I do. And I know that made him bonkers. And mm. then I would, you know, often sometimes be frustrated with him, like, okay, Perk up, buttercup, and like, yeah, can you be friendly? You know, like, (laughs) so just little things like that that um, sound really silly. Yeah. But when you're already both like at the height of stress that you've ever felt in your life, um, it's just amazing not to over spiritualize it, but like how I think Satan can just use those circumstances to turn you against each other rather than pull you toward each other. And Mm -hmm. so, we um, we got wise advice from a pastor of ours to start counseling before we even begin treatment. And I am so, so grateful for that advice. And that, I think, kept some of the damage to a minimum. Um, a girlfriend of mine who came to visit me and took me out to lunch one day during chemo is a um, social worker. And she works with people going through trauma all the time. And she gave me a tidbit that stuck with me. And she said, Leslie, there will be damage from this experience. Mm. There is always damage when you walk through suffering. And so your job right now as a wife and a mom is to do what you can to minimize the damage. Mm. And she was right. And I feel like we did as good a job as we possibly could have at minimizing the damage um, in our marriage and pressing toward each other when we wanted to pull away. Mm. And that didn't always come naturally, but I feel like we usually found a way to make that adjustment eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about when the grief finally did hit you and what it was like to grieve even after getting your good report. Yeah, that that's definitely one of my biggest surprises, I think, of this whole experience, and it continues to be, is how grief and trauma can persist and affect you in really profound ways, even when you got a happy ending. So about six months after Jonathan got the news that he was cancer-free, he had done most of the major recovering from that last surgery. I will say it took about a year for him to really get back to 100%. I started to, little by little, and then a lot by a lot, feel all the feelings that I had not felt. I knew that they would come at some point. Like I said, I knew that I had been numb. I knew that I was sitting in situations when I I realized how I should be feeling and how I should be reacting and I wasn't. For example, I remember one night Jonathan waking me up at about two in the morning and he was just really honestly in the, the darkest moment of his life. He was hopeless. He was he felt physically awful. He was 
emotionally and spiritually and mentally depleted and he had been awake for some time and finally was in realized he was in such a dark place that he woke me up and asked me to pray and um, so I sat up with him for the next hour just reading scripture over him praying over him and in that moment I remember feeling so strange because I realized I am watching the person I love the most in my life literally in his darkest hour to date and I feel nothing like I am able to do what I need to do I am able like none of that was fake I mean I was there for him and with him and present and and everything was you know genuine in that moment but I you would think that my heart should be breaking and I should be weeping with him and I just didn't feel any of that so six months later I started to have memories of some of those hardest days and hardest moments. And in those moments, driving down the street with all my kids in my car, the flood of emotion that I should have felt then is suddenly coming. And so multiple times a week, I'm having these kind of surprise moments where a memory would be triggered and the emotion would come. And I um, was just so sad. I was so sad that we had gone through that at all. I was sad for my kids. I started grieving little things like, um, you know, my youngest baby was nine months old. I had to stop nursing him way sooner than I would have. Because I was at the hospital so much that I just couldn't keep up um, with pumping. And the little things, little losses that um, suddenly I was able to think about and feel and and grieve and I realized within about a month that I was not in a good place and that I would not be able to continue um, without things getting worse before they got better unless I got some some help and so mm-hmm. I reached out to one of our pastors and got a recommendation for a counselor and she was really instrumental in helping me process um, what I had been through and my grief and and a big part of that was that I, I'm naturally a pretty positive person anyway. If you've ever taken the Strengths Finder, positivity is on my list. And mm-hmm. so every time I would feel sad or every time that emotion would come, I would just justify it away saying like, he's healthy. He's alive. It was a good kind of cancer to have. It only really lasted nine months. It wasn't that bad, right? I should not feel this sad. Um, I shouldn't feel this grief. I shouldn't be depressed. I shouldn't be anxious about it coming back. The prognosis is good. I just justified away every little thing. And it was the counselor who looked me square in the face and said, your husband was diagnosed with cancer when you had a five, three and nine month old. That is hard. That is a Mm. big deal. Like I literally was at a point where I needed somebody to tell me that that was a big deal and that that was hard. I had just rationalized away all those feelings so much. Um, She also really helped me get to the bottom of what some of those emotions were and that some of those emotions, you know, our emotions are a gift from God. And my lack of emotion during that season really was a gift from God so that I could function and do what I needed to do for my family. But my emotions now are also a gift from God and feeling those is a gift. And Mm. I get to go there. I get to feel those things and process through them. But in the process of talking about that with her, I at one point mentioned guilt just kind of in passing. And and this is why I will always and forever advocate for counseling, because you can have the best friends and the best listeners in the world in your life. And I did. But someone who is trained to listen for the right things and to ask the right questions mm. is just invaluable. Yeah. And so she heard me say guilt. And I, um, she said, I'm going to go back to that. What do you mean guilt? And I said, well, I mean, just guilt that I like didn't feel anything when this person I love so much is going through this horrible thing. And she was like, okay, well, let's think about that. Like guilt typically happens for one of two reasons. It's either conviction over something that really is wrong, that um, is a sin or something that, that we're in the wrong on. And that kind of guilt can be healthy when we see that and turn around and go the other way, right? And she said, was it a sin for you to not feel emotion during the most difficult trial of your life thus far? And I was like, well, no. And she said, exactly. So the only other reason that we typically feel guilt is because of lies (laughs) that Mm. we are believing 
and that the enemy is allowing to to penetrate our heart. And it was like the second she said that, but he turned the lights on in my mind. And suddenly I realized that beneath all this kind of general sadness and guilt were these lies that you didn't feel anything because you don't love your husband enough. You really weren't a very good caregiver. You um, are really pretty selfish and pretty cold hearted. And that is why you didn't feel any emotion. And I, I could suddenly see all of that for what it was. And she helped me to see that from that point on, my job in processing and grieving was when those memories came and when those true real emotions came that I could go there and feel those things and process through them and move forward. But if any emotion came along that had its roots in any of those lies or in guilt that I was not enough during that time or that I did it wrong, um, that I got to throw that out real quick. And it was really instrumental for me in moving forward and allowing that season of suffering to be something productive in my life. Yeah. Man, I wish you could see right now. I have like tears rolling down my face because it's like, oh, shoot. Like I needed to hear that, too. I don't know if you knew, but my mom had leukemia. Yes. Okay. So um, and she actually passed away. But I have a lot of that, those feelings of like, I mean, as you're talking about being like, how do I not feel anything right now? I have I have memories of consciously thinking like, be sweet to her. All she feels like is yeah. that she's a burden on everyone. And yet I would still like act like that she was, you know, like I would yeah. like if she dropped something and I picked it up, like in my head, I'm like annoyed, but, yeah. and I'm trying not to show it, but I'm like, oh, I'm annoyed that I'm having to like take care of you. And I do know that a lot of that was like, probably frustration that this is not right. Like I should not right. be having to take care of my mom. She's the one who does to take care of me. But I still, the, I have moments I can clearly remember thinking, why can't I just be sweet? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or stuff like that. So this is very, very helpful for me. And hopefully I'm sure to a lot of people listening, just the distinction between guilt either being from sin or I don't know how you'd phrase the other. Yeah, sin or lies, really. Sin I or mean, lies, that's, that's right. Kind of that I think the words she used in that moment, I have to give credit because it was Mary Jane Hall from um, Frontline cool. who said all this to me. But yeah, it was that it's either conviction or lies. Mm. And um, yeah, that was huge. And I, mm. I wish I could say that like that passed quickly, but it didn't. It was a process. Mm-hmm. And it also coincided with some awesome like hormones and postpartum awesome. greatness that was all happening at the same time. So I was yeah. a real peach um, yeah. <laughs> during that season. But I here's what I also want to say is those days, those moments and those memories still come and they still hit us. And I have felt a lot of um, just confusion and some loneliness in processing grief after a happy ending because it just feels like you you shouldn't have any of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. what do I have to be sad about? We all made it through on the other side. And yet another pastor friend of mine had told me that he read a book called Struck, which I have not read, but he and my husband have, and they highly recommend it, where he illustrates suffering or any kind of trauma coming into your life as a tornado going through your home. And we live in Oklahoma, so we know about tornadoes. When a tornado goes through your home, it is going to send stuff everywhere. And it takes time to figure out where that damage and impact hit and where things ended up. Mm. So I'm learning that that helps me really explain why on the three-year anniversary of finding out my husband is cancer-free, super, super happy news. I am spending my day teary Mm -hmm. and emotional and sad because honestly, we're still dealing with some repercussions of that season in our Mm -hmm. family. And without going into a ton of detail, my oldest child is dealing with a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. that um, has recently led us to bring in some external help. um, And that really, I think has a lot of its roots in that season when Mm. his dad was sick. And so the day of that year anniversary, I had been at a counselor's office with my child Mm. and I was sad that, um, that we were having to do that at all. And that he'd ever had to experience those things at such a young age and that he has those memories of his dad being sick and that he had to ask those hard questions early on. And Mm. yet at the same time, I am so thankful Actually, just a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, and I never thought 
that this day would come and it surprised me when it did, but I had a, a memory of something kind that a friend did for me when Jonathan was sick and it just got my wheels turning about that season and remembering some other kindnesses to us during that time. And I thought about how different Jonathan and I both are because of what we went through in so many good ways, how the Lord used that time to really transform our hearts in some ways that just would not have happened without um, that experience. And just out of nowhere, through my tears, by myself in my kitchen, I just said, thank you, God. Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, I just thanked God for cancer. Like mm. I, I, I had, we had been seeing the goodness that the Lord had brought out of that hardship for the last few years, but I still couldn't have said I was thankful for it. Right. And, and a few weeks ago I got there, but that is going hand in hand with still having moments where I'm just sad that it happened at all. So I want, um, I know I've talked to women who feel very similarly after having a child, um, who had a long stay in the NICU and left healthy, right? Mm. I shouldn't be sad over what we went through because my child's healthy and I got to bring them home. Well, you can still grieve even when you got a happy ending. Right. And, um, cause there were still things that were lost. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for people who haven't been through those experiences, it can be hard to relate to because they just think you should be over it because mm-hmm. everything's fine. I mean, I straight up had someone, I referred to going to counseling in a group at one point and someone looked at me and said, you went to counseling. Why did you go to counseling? And I was just so stunned, you know, Yeah. Um, it's just funny how like we only give people permission to have been affected by something if it turned out badly. That's right. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I do love that analogy of the tornado that that's really actually pretty perfect because it's like even if you even if you lived through it, okay, you should be grateful because here's somebody who didn't live through it or here's somebody who lost their entire home and you only lost whatever. But you still have things that you lost and like hopes and dreams that have to be grieved that, Absolutely. you know, you have time that was stolen, things that were stolen, you know, and that have to be grieved. So her expectations or whatever. Yeah. My counselor, another tidbit that she said that it's kind of funny that she had to say it to me, but it made a big impact was I was justifying that so many worse things happen to other people. You know, mm-hmm. there are so many other, and you hear that a lot, like mm-hmm. when you're feeling sad, think about all these other people who are in such worse situations <laughs> and then you'll feel grateful, you know? Um, my, my, I know my counselor brother-in-law always says like, don't minimize your own pain. Yeah. And it, I was in the, in counseling in the middle of saying like, well, so many other people have it so, so much worse. And some, and she just looked at me dead on and said, yes, but this was the worst thing that has ever happened to you. Mm, yeah. I was like, yeah, it was, you know, and it sounds so simple, but I think we get a little bit caught up in playing this comparison game of whose pain is worse. Yeah. And, and it keeps us from like having some real talk with ourselves about our own pain and working through it and That's being right. transformed by it. That's right. That's so good. Okay. Can you tell us some things that you've learned about how to love people well when they're in their season of suffering? And then also maybe some little helpful things not to do. Yes. So there um, were so many people who loved us so well during that season, but there were definitely some things I took away for the future of how I wanted to operate with people who I know who are suffering. And one of those things just at the base level is to just show up say something, do something. I think we get so caught up with saying or doing the wrong thing that often we get paralyzed and we don't do anything. And the absence is far more painful than any clumsy words you might say or anything that you might do that isn't the right thing to do. But as far as doing something, a big takeaway I had was that the most helpful thing you can do is to make tangible offers of something really concrete that only requires a yes or a no, because Mm. here's what happens. People say, and they mean this, they really do mean it. They say, let me know if there's anything you need, or let me know if there's anything I can do for you. They mean that. But the problem with that statement is that it puts the burden of care on the person who is hurting. And in those moments, here's where I was. I couldn't have told you what I needed. I didn't know, like my brain was so overloaded and overstimulated that I really could not put two and two together to do anything more than just like get my family through the day, you know? Right. Um, 
And then here's the other thing that gets tricky is like, okay, well, when you say that, I don't really know what anything. Yeah. <laughs> if I do you know, think of something, I'm going to feel bad asking you to do exactly. it. Exactly. Like what if what I need is more than you were wanting to give? That's right. And then mm-hmm. I'm stuck in this awkward spot. And so what was so helpful to me were people who said, you know what? I am free on Tuesday and Thursday this week. My kids and I are just going to be home. Would you drop yours off with mm. us for that day? Yes. Or, so hey, I am available to bring a dinner on Thursday night. Would that work for you? Um, my husband had a friend who had a landscaping business. And the day after I brought him home from his first surgery, we looked out the window to see his entire lawn crew descending upon our property, mm, which we live on that. two acres in the woods. It's a big job. <laughs> yeah, so it's not just like a 20 minute. Yes, they had all of our land done in 30 minutes, and they continue to do that once a week for the next wow. nine months until he was done treatment. Uh, I love that. Like tangible offers that require a yes or no are huge, and avoiding saying that, like, let me know what I can do. Instead of that, think about what you can do and then make that offer and just put it out there as simply and concretely as you can that only requires a yes or no. That those things were super helpful to me. And then on the front of you know, saying or doing something, don't discount the the littlest thing that you can do. Um, one of the sweetest moments for me during this time was a day when I had been in chemo all day. My children were with someone else. And as I was sitting in chemo, I was craving chocolate chip cookies. And I thought, oh, I want to go home and make cookies with my kids. And then pretty quickly, I realized I can't do that. Like, I've got to go pick them up. I've got to bring them home. I've got to get Jonathan settled in bed and then I've got to do dinner and bedtime and like I just can't do things like making cookies right now mm-hmm. and so I went home got the kids did all that and when I got home there was a package on my front porch from my friend Missy one of my best friends from grad school at Baylor and when I opened up that package it was a package of homemade chocolate chip cookies oh, I, I got that. to sit with my children and eat chocolate chip cookies that we didn't have to make ourselves. Yes. And it was the sweetest gift. And in that moment, God just showed me in that simple way that he saw me and he heard me right down to my desire to have chocolate chip cookies with my kids that evening. Wow. And when I thanked my friend Missy for those things, she basically apologized to me for doing something so small. Mm. She had been frustrated that she didn't have, you know, the location. She lives in Pennsylvania. She didn't have, she wasn't close enough to do anything or didn't have the means to do what she would have wanted to do in that time. And that was what she could think to do. And yet that was the thing that the Lord used so poignantly for me in that day. So just know that like, you can't bring over a full homemade dinner. It's okay. Like, can can you drop off some chocolate chip cookies? Can you, a girlfriend once brought over one of those, you know, uh, reusable grocery sacks from Target full of squeezy applesauce pouches and a couple rolls of paper towels and Clorox wipes and just, you know, all those random things that like moms just yes, use. And that's right. Yep. She, she too apologized saying, I'm sorry I couldn't do more, but I was just at Target and I just thought I'd grab a few things that you just might need that might save you a trip to the store at some point. Holly, like, I love it. it like, just little things like that. Um, a sweet lady that Jonathan's known his whole life coordinated a gift card drive from all these people that know and love Jonathan here in Midwest City where he grew up. And um, so our family did not have to spend a dime on food for right. that whole time. But a lot of people would think, oh, a gift card is not much. You know? Yeah, yeah. So just do what you can. And then finally, there is great, great power in just showing up and sitting with people. You know, we worry so much about what to say, but I, the, the friend who ministered to us in some of the deepest ways was one of Jonathan's longtime college buddies who lives in Dallas. And every couple of weeks, he would drive up for the day and just come and sit. We joked that he needed to like start his own like hospice care or something. <laughs> He was so good at just sitting. And when Jonathan wanted to talk, he would talk a little bit. But when Jonathan got tired, Ryan would just sit in a chair quietly. He usually showed up with some sort of coffee or something for me. Yeah. Or a bag of groceries or whatever. That's good. Wins you over. You'll win me over with some coffee. (laughs) Exactly. He would do something sweet for me and then he would just sit. And it was so simple. um, But like 
we were still talking about Ryan and how well he loved us during that time. So Mm -hmm. those are a few things that get me going about caring well for people when they're hurting. Yeah, those are so good. So, okay, the last question that I ask every guest is if you could go back in time five or 10 years and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? So I feel like I have kind of like a, what I would say to the myself 10 years ago and then like five years ago. Okay, because 10 years ago is like before kids. Five years ago is before exactly. illness. Okay, exactly. let's do it. In the last 10 years, I have both been like working on the the corporate professional side of things. And then I've also spent the last eight years as a stay-at-home mom and the last four as a homeschooling mom. And so the biggest thing that I wish I could just really go back and drill into my head and heart is that I will never find my identity or fulfillment in what I do because I've done them both. I have done the, the working girl thing and I have done the mom thing. And and neither one of them are going to fill all those gaps mm. in my heart or in how I feel about myself or in my identity. And um, in particular, that my my children are not here to boost my self-esteem. It's amazing how parenthood can just hit on all these little areas of pride and shame that are in our hearts. And um, I think for a lot of my years of motherhood, so much of my parenting has been reacting to my own junk Mm. that my kids bring out in me. Yeah. And I'm thankful that early on someone shared with me that idea that my kids are not here to boost my self-esteem or make me look good. And the sooner I can get over that, the more productive I'm going to be as a parent, loving my kids well for who they are. And so I feel like I'm just now starting to find my groove in that a little bit more now that my oldest is eight. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, that's still early. I'm so, I'm glad you're saying this to me right now. I'm like, okay, good. I'm, I've only had three years to like screw this up. <laughs> yes. Seriously. There are a couple things with motherhood, like that general idea that like my kids aren't here to make me feel good. Yeah. And, and this is just for all the ladies listening and mamas out there, but I wish I had known sooner that hormones are a thing yeah. and that they are a huge influence. And I think a lot of the things that I dealt with as a young mom, um, and I'm, I mean, my youngest is four, so I'm kind of just now out of that season of babies and toddlers, things that I was really hard on myself about. I now look back and realize like that was sleep deprivation and hormones. Like <laughs> I really beat myself up about mm. a lot of just my mistakes as a mom that now I realize I was teetering on the edge <laughs> just physiologically because yeah. of the season of life I was in, you yeah. know, and now that I like get a good night's rest and I'm not pregnant or nursing, I realize like, oh, I maybe am kind of a sane person who has some self-control with my <laughs> you know? <laughs> Did you say who has self-control with my emotions? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is so like hopeful to hear. <laughs> and, I, and my husband's probably listening and he's like, oh, good. There's hope for us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, um, and I think the last thing that I kind of wish I would have known early on specifically about motherhood is that I get to be the expert on my own kid and to feel confident in that and to advocate as such. Um, I think early on, especially with my first, some of my biggest regrets as a mom are things that I did and choices that I made as a result of feeling some pressure or expectation from other people about how I needed to do something. Yeah. And it took me a a little time to find my groove in that. I think it I think that's normal. It takes all of us a little time. Yeah, to build confidence. Exactly. Cuz we don't know what in the world we're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I think I just kind of in some ways allowed myself to be swayed a little bit by, you know, other people's opinions of how I needed to do discipline or what type of education my child should have or needed and and so now a few more years down the road, I feel a little bit more confident in making those calls and trusting my mom gut and not apologizing for those choices that I feel led to make for my kid. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I know this has been an hour and a half of time and you please thank your, um, I don't know if you said your in-laws are watching your kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank them for us too. And I will. I'm sure I will talk to you soon. Right, girl. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Bye. Bye. You guys, we did go on to talk for about 15 more minutes about homeschooling because my main question was, okay, 
when do you get time for you? Because I'm selfish like that. Um, I didn't include it here just because we were already over our time. But if that's something you're interested in, just let me know. And if I have enough interest, I may publish that as like a bonus episode or something. Um, Because I really liked her thoughts on that. And my kids are not school age yet, so I'm soaking in all the ideas. Everything we talked about today is up on headedsomeplace.com, including some extra Q&A with Leslie, like the music she's listening to and loving right now, and the most influential book she's ever read. You'll also be able to contact Leslie or myself at headedsomeplace.com. Special thanks today for music from thelightparademusic.com and Frontline Music, produced by Dustin Raglan. Thank you for listening, and I hope today you feel a little less alone and a little more encouraged.